This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. A new poll out of Toronto, which shows that most Torontonians believe cyclists should be licensed and insured. Just like a driver. Campaign Research did this survey of 506 Toronto residents. 60% of those 506 respondents believe that cyclists should be required to have a license and get insurance, just like motorists. Now, Toronto councillors have looked at a bicycle licensing system before, but the high cost of running that program has always been deemed a non-starter. should mention, by the way, the poll was conducted between July 7th and 10th as a margin of error of plus or minus 5% 19 times out of 20. Let's talk about this. This survey is showing that most Torontonians, or most of these 506 people, believe that cyclists should be licensed and insured. Our opening guest on the program today, Joanna Bleeker, co-director of Cycle Hamilton, and joins us now. Joanna, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. So uh, first glance or, or first blush at this study results, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I don't think that bike licensing is a good idea. Um, this poll itself showed that most uh, cyclists also did not agree it was a good idea. The demographic that thought it was a good idea was mostly like older, wealthier folks who drive cars. Um, so I don't know, as a cyclist and as someone who's really interested in getting more cyclists on the road, uh, licensing serves as a deterrent for that and doesn't work for a whole host of other reasons. So it sounds like those older, wealthier people who are, uh, you know, nine uh, 199,999 times out of a million going to be in a car as opposed to mm-hmm. a bike uh, going to and from work, the most likely scenario, uh, are in favor of this because I think they want fewer cyclists on the road. Is that a fair statement? Uh, could be. You know, I don't, I'm not really sure what they're thinking. I know a lot of uh, drivers, you know, they'll see one cyclist one time, run a stop sign or ride on the sidewalk, and they'll sort of ascribe that to the group and think that the, that every cyclist is a lawbreaker of some kind or other, but, you know, they won't do the same when a driver, you know, breaks a, <laughs> breaks a driving law or runs a stop sign or whatnot. So, uh, you know, you don't see as many, you don't see calls for cyclists saying that drivers should uh, lose their licenses for that kind of thing. I'm going to be doing a segment on driver licenses uh, either tomorrow or Thursday, and we're going to talk about retesting and uh, some of the thoughts that I have. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to key in on drivers this week. There's no doubt about it. Okay, uh, yeah. As for cyclists, though, um, mm. I'm not sure how much you would have to pay for a license or even insurance. Uh, it might be nominal. I'm not sure. But you're thinking it would discourage many people from hopping on their bikes because they, they don't want an extra fee, right? Yeah. And I mean, the city of Toronto in that sort of study that they did where they basically determined that they were never, ever going to look at licensing again, um, you know, they said that basically the cost of running a bike licensing system would be similar to the cost of running a car licensing system and with the implication that fees would be somewhat similar. And I mean, you know how expensive it is to get a driver's license. And, you know, if so, you, you know, your kid wants to ride a bike, right? Your kid wants to ride a bike down to the park. You're not going to pay hundreds of dollars so that your kid can ride a bike, right? So what are they supposed to do? It's that cycling is really something we should be encouraging, and putting a license in place with all the bureaucracy and uh, you know costs involved really takes away from that. I would uh, I would bet that the insurance companies would say, yeah, we love this idea. I mean, it means more money for them, right? <laughs> I suppose so, but I I think that cyclists just wouldn't 
do it. And that's the other problem with a bike licensing system um, from all the studies that have been done in the past is that it's really hard to enforce um, and also just not a good use of police resources to enforce a bike licensing and insurance system. Um, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of cyclists are also car drivers and therefore also do already pay insurance companies and, you know, are, are already pay like property taxes um, that help maintain roads and whatnot. So, yeah, I'm not really sure what the what the benefit would be. How about this idea? If you are, uh, you know, a driver, you have a driver's license, you pay auto insurance. How about if you have a bike and you are cycling you get a discount because now you are not on the road as much with your vehicle. I think, to me, that makes a little more sense. Well, yeah, I mean, the idea of just providing incentives for drivers to ride bikes is a good thing, but I don't want it to be a punishment for cyclists who don't drive either because also that would Mm. be really hard-hitting to a lot of uh, vulnerable populations, right? People who can't necessarily afford to drive and can only afford to bike. Um, You know, we need to have an option for them to get around. We're speaking with uh, Joanna Bleeker, co-director of Hamilton Cycle, about a story uh, out of Toronto. Uh, a new poll conducted by Campaign Research uh, surveyed 506 Toronto residents, and most of those 506, 60% in fact, believe that cyclists should be required to have a license and get insurance just like drivers. Um, there is a huge environmental benefit for more people cycling. I mean, we want to get smog out of our downtowns and out of our highways. Uh, mm-hmm. that, that is a huge challenge, obviously. And, but the more cyclists we have, the less uh, you know emissions from vehicles we're going to have. Yeah, exactly. And I think really uh, the better way to encourage more cycling and also encourage better cyclist behavior is to build safe, protected bike infrastructure like bike lanes and trails and that kind of thing. Um, you know, if you see a cyclist riding on the sidewalk, it's likely the reason is that they don't feel safe riding on the road because it's a big, busy street with lots of cars that aren't going to give them the space that they need. So building that sort of infrastructure, I think, will be a better step in terms of making sure that cyclists are riding on the road and feel safe doing so and also just encouraging people to ride more in general. So you're obviously in favor of having more bike lanes. Do we, do we have enough in this city right now? No, we do not have enough. Um, We definitely need more. I mean, uh, you know, in Hamilton, there's the cycling master plan, which is great, but uh, city council has been very, very slow about devoting the resources that their own report and staff have recommended that they should devote um, in order to complete the CMP along the timeline that was proposed for it. So it uh, it was implemented in 2009. It was supposed to be completed by 2029. um, And at this rate, we're only about 11% done with the Cycling Master Plan uh, implementation. So we're clearly not going to get there by 2029 unless uh, a lot more resources are devoted to putting in bike lanes. What part of the city is in most need of bike lanes or more bike lanes? Well, that's kind of a tricky one because downtown, lower city sort of already has the most bike lanes. So that's also where there are the most cyclists, the highest concentration of cyclists. I would really love to see... um, a focus on bike infrastructure connecting the upper and lower city, like along the like Claremont Access bike lane that's been talked about. Um, so more infrastructure like that, just to sort of ensure that people who do want to cycle on the mountain, who frequently need to come downtown, that they have a safe way of doing so. Um, I think that's a big missing link. And then, you know, in many of the sort of more outer line wards, like in uh, Dundas um, and many of them, Flamborough and all sorts of areas like that, there's zero, like, None of the CMP projects have been implemented since 2009.
which I think is a real shame. You you referenced it uh, earlier in our chat about uh, you know the main bugaboo amongst drivers is uh, you know they they see a cyclist who is you know or or she or here breaking the rules, doing something that they shouldn't be, or riding somewhere where they shouldn't be, uh, and they paint all cyclists with the same brush, which is completely unfair. But are there cyclists who give other cyclists a bad name? I mean. Like I was mentioning before with the infrastructure, I think a lot of the time sort of cities get the cyclists that they deserve, right? If they, if you build safe, protected infrastructure, that's where cyclists will choose to ride. But now in Hamilton, you will see cyclists riding along the sidewalk along Main Street because they don't feel safe riding along Main Street. I would say, you know, if someone wanted to take the idea of licensing, bike licensing seriously, um, you would also have to say, well, you know, we license car drivers and we provide a place for them to drive cars and we maintain roads and make sure that those roads are like efficient and fast and direct and whatnot. Um, so, you know, if anybody did want to sort of propose idea bike licensing, I would say that they should, you know, be doing the same for cyclists or commit to doing that, uh, you know, in advance of actually licensing the cyclists. It's not very fair to say you have to have a license and you have to follow these rules, but we're not going to provide a place for you to ride on the road. Do you know of any Canadian community or even uh, European community? I'm, you know, I'm thinking somewhere in the Netherlands. They are, you know, really bike reliant. Uh, that that does uh, uh, charge cyclists uh, for license and for insurance. As far as I know, it really hasn't. Uh, like most municipalities that used to do it, don't do it anymore. Uh, most of them were sort of repealed at one point or another, um, or proposed but not implemented. Uh, Cycle Toronto, the advocacy group in Toronto, did a sort of uh, did a study on that, and um, I'm kind of looking, I'm scanning it now, and it looks like there aren't any major cities in Canada, at least, that don't do it. Um, yeah, they don't mention any cities that still do it. It looks like all of them have repealed. Joanne, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We're joined in studio now by the uh, owner of Sarcoa Restaurant on the uh, Hamilton Waterfront. As you probably know, Sarcoa was uh, forced to close after the Hamilton Waterfront Trust uh, terminated the restaurant's lease. Uh, the move has also thrown a number of events that have been uh, booked at Sarcoa into limbo. Uh, the company in charge of uh, operating those events, uh, Gem Hospitality, now trying to move those events to uh, another uh, venue, basically. Uh, Sam Destro, the owner of Sarcoa, in studio with us uh, for the next half hour. Um, number one, thank you very much for, for joining us in studio. Thank you, Rick. I really appreciate it. Um, so you're here today to to obviously clear the air after Sarcoa was uh, forced to close. What do you want the public to know? Well, first and foremost, uh, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak. Uh, really appreciate the airtime because uh, you could tell the the whole story and not just snippets. Right. So I, I just want to make sure that everybody understands that this was totally unavoidable and unnecessary. Uh, we're not evil people. We we try to do something good for the city of Hamilton. We feel like we've been humiliate, humiliated, sabotaged. And I would like to spend the next three minutes to give you some 100% truth and facts. I swear to tell <coughs> the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. All right, go ahead. So... Uh, We've never missed a payment post-injunction. So from November the 15th to May 2017, that's approximately seven months, we paid the trust each and every month. We made the payment approximately 
about 600,000 to 700, anywhere around there. And uh, so that is undisputable. So post-injunction, never missed a payment. Until June the 14th, 2017, we were in good standing with the injunction order. That's barely a month away, okay? On June the 15th, the rent was delayed for various reasons. The two most important reasons were that the, the Waterfront Trust never paid our tax, uh, the, uh, the taxes that we were forwarding to them so that they were in significant tax arrears. So we were forced to pay them taxes <clears throat> and they weren't remitting them. And under our, uh, under our lease agreement, they were required to provide us uh, hydro reconciliations with uh, supporting invoices. Since the inception of the lease, we've never got them. We were paying almost $90,000 a year to the, to the waterfront. So I just want to make that very clear. So instead of receiving on June the 15th, instead of receiving the usual warning that we were late because we purposely delayed the payments from December 16 to May 17. As a matter of fact, we didn't pay the May rent until May the 30th. And that's because we felt like we, we, were, we, we had no leverage. Nobody was listening to us. We felt that like our arms and legs, ankles were tied and, and that we had, we, we were, nobody was listening to us and we were just left to suffer. So instead of re- uh, receiving the usual warning, the Waterfront Trust, three days later, four days later, yeah, so we're supposed to make the payment on June the 15th. On June the 19th, we get this order and it showed that we owed $226,000, okay? So most importantly, people, all those people who have uh, now have scrambled and I know firsthand how, what that feels like because three days before my daughter's wedding in 2015, September the 15th, they sent the bailiff to close us down. This is when the, we started, this dispute started in the middle of, of uh, I would say probably the summer of, well, obviously July uh, 2015. So for all those people who have been upset and, 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 and uh, obviously are, are scrambling now, Especially for that family that that uh, uh, almost had their their wedding canceled, this was totally one hundred percent avoidable. These are truths and facts. They rejected our payment to cover the June rent. More importantly, there was a proposal with a third party that would have provided stability for a minimum six months. Now, last night on 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 the uh, on the uh, CHCH interview I did. I said that I made a mistake, but unfortunately, what, what, they, what they didn't sh- uh, tell uh, the, the audience that was watching is that I also said that shortly thereafter that there's remedies. Like when you make mistakes, there are remedies. And our remedy was, uh, was available to, to us, was, which is a forfeiture remedy. I'm not a lawyer, but I guess I'm almost uh, trained to be one because of all the, the stuff that we're going through. And that remedy would have given us a chance to go back in. But the Waterfront Trust, in my opinion, sabotaged those efforts. What I want to make sure that everybody understands is that we're not 100% wrong, but we're paying the full price. If you compare the investment and losses, uh, it's incredible. Like they, they post something which is, I think, severely misleading that we owe money, which was protected under the injunction order. So you get the Hound Waterfront Trust who has this, this building when we moved in in 2015, uh, 2011, 12. 
it, it, it's it's absolutely worth nothing. There, there there's weeds growing from top to bottom. Um, we we uh, they invest nine hundred thousand dollars, and and over the last five years, we've spent over a million dollars in. Uh, we gave them over a million dollars in rent related. I'm sorry, two million dollars in rent and rent related expenses. Okay, hmm. so they invested nine hundred. And they get that. Now they post that we owe uh, uh, two hundred thousand. I'd like to two hundred twenty-six. I'd like to address that uh, if I can. Sarcoa. Now compare that to Sarcoa investing over five million dollars, right, in, in capital, and and, uh, and we've lost one million dollars since the restrictions were enforced by the city of Hamilton bylaw. So, so if you take a look at those, I swear that those are facts. And and I really want to I really want to emphasize the fact that they they had every opportunity to take our money and they didn't. On th- they had three different opportunities to collect our June 15 rent. Remember, they served us four days, so they served us on June the 19th, and we had until July 4th to remedy it. Hmm. Okay. So we, we uh, when when what so what happened was and, and this is very important and and I think I have to say this okay so when when we received the uh, the order to to uh, to pay there's two components of it there was the amount of the two twenty six now that two twenty six I, I, I this is very important in November of two thousand and fifteen we, we we received a court injunction. And at that time, we only owed them 210. And the reason why we owed them 210 is because for the previous four months, July, we, we stopped July, August, September, and October payment because at that time they enforced the bylaws. So we felt that we didn't have a, you know, we, didn't, we weren't going to pay for something that we couldn't use. Hmm. So we went to the courts because they tried to lock us out, like, like I said, in September. They tried to lock us out just before my, my daughter's wedding. So we went to the courts. And we got an injunction with costs, which means that the, the judge saw that there was merit. So the judge said to the Waterfront Trust, basically, you can't close them down. And they told us, you have to pay $38,000 a month to keep this alive. And we did. Hmm. We never missed a payment. But if you take a look at what was posted on the door, it would seem that. Now, here's, here's where things get really ugly, okay? So... When we get this notice, there's two components. We have to pay the 226, which I disagree with. And then there's an accelerated rent of 116, okay? That's because they said that we did other things that, that were not allowed in the lease, which we dispute. So we immediately called them and said, we're, not, we're gonna make this good, okay? So for the previous five months, months, Rick, they would take our payments, no problem. So I think what happened is we poked the bear, okay? Because in May, we sent them a letter saying, listen, not we're not we're not saying that we're not paying you, but why are these realty taxes not being reimbursed? Why aren't you telling me about these hydros? We had no leverage, okay? So what happens next? Okay, so we get to a point where we just we just we're, we're frustrated, okay? We're really really frustrated. So what happens is that they had three chances to to solve this. They could have taken our payment. They could have taken the accelerator rent. Or they could have taken a, a, a deal, and I want to talk about this deal. There's a third-party proposal, okay, that we, we became aware of, that uh, we sent them. Uh, so what happened was uh, shortly in, in between receiving the, uh, the default order, which was 
on the 19th. And July 4th was when we had to pay. We received an understanding from a third-party negotiator. Okay, So this third-party negotiator was working with our lawyer and a member of the Hamilton Waterfront Trust, Tom Jackson. Okay, Now, I'm not saying anything disparaging about Tom. Tom Jackson has always tried to do the right thing here. He's, I believe that he's probably one of the, the only one that really wants this thing solved. So third-party negotiator, significant Toronto, Toronto investor, Tom Jackson, our lawyer, uh, had an understanding that the board would not make any decision on, on, uh, on, on, the, uh, on closing this down until July the, uh, J- July the 11th. Okay? So on July, uh, we, we meet our lawyer on June the 30th. On, ju- uh, on Tuesday, which is July 4th, hmm. our lawyer calls me and says, listen, I have an understanding. He sends me a letter. I have an understanding that there's no action to be taken. Now, don't forget right now, we still have remedies under forfeiture. The fact that we were late, sure, okay, the injunction was strict order, okay? The fact that we were late, they were in prejudice. We would go back to court and say, hey, guys, you know, it would just be another $30,000, $20,000, which we were willing to do. So we go back to court and say, listen, here's the money, here's the 116000 which we told them we were going to pay. We just want to get back, and, and we wanted to keep this a proposal alive. What does the Waterfront Trust do? Okay, so really important. So my, my, my partner was on holidays on, on July 5th. He comes home, and I call him at 9 o'clock in the morning. He said, hey, you might as well stay on holidays because we've got good news. He knew about it too, but he didn't know that I got that letter. And I said, listen, uh, uh, we, we, we're, we're, pro- we're, we're going to be good because we have st- stability for the next six months. I get off the phone. The saliva on my tongue doesn't dry. And uh, our manager calls and says, yeah, they're trying to shut us down. So our lawyer rushes down to the Waterfront Trust and says, listen, guys, we have this proposal that Tom has been working on with a third party. It's there. They have received now the proposal. It's in their hands, which would see a prominent investment. So this opportunity from this Toronto group, all they wanted to do is give us some money, six months rent in advance that we would forward to the Hamilton Waterfront Trust. And that would give them an opportunity to pursue some investment in period. So here's, a, here's somebody who wants to spend millions of dollars and they want to go through us because we own the lease. So maybe I can't, I don't know, I can't read their mind. So maybe by, you know, uh, getting in there and, and seeing that we have 26 years left in lease, maybe they could buy our lease mm. and negotiate with the city. I think it, it's obvious to anybody and everybody that that's the jewel of the development. They saw, they saw an opportunity there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And this is not the first time. This is the second time we were approached. We spent six months with another uh, group that we're looking at buying into our lease for the purpose of developing not only that area, but the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So, so did the yeah. trust explain to you why they, they didn't like nothing. that deal? They said nothing. Okay, okay, here's the best part of it, okay? So, uh, so, so they closed us down, and then so for the next four or five days, we're in panic mode, okay? So we're sending them messages saying, look, here's the rent. We're going to go for forfeiture relief. Mm-hmm. We're going to do this and that. Nothing. Zero. All we were told was that on July 11th, that the board was going to look at our two things. They were going to look at this deal. Okay, I'm sorry, proposal. Mm-hmm. And they were going to look at our request to pay them three months of accelerated rent. And it was very clear to them that if they didn't take either one of those two, that we were going to go back to court. Mm. Okay, so what did they do? This is where they sabotaged us. 
Okay, I'm sorry. This is my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay, and this is why I am angry. This is how they sabotage us. They turn around, don't make any decision. Now we know that they they received the proposal because it's uh, it's on their agenda for July right. 11th. Okay, that should be public knowledge. And then, anyway, we're going to be submitting this at some point in time in court. All of this is going to be proven in court. So they had a chance on July 11th, the board meeting, to do the right thing. So I'll forget all those people that are upset, all those people that have been uh, like displaced and, and whatever. Think about this. The Waterfront Trust refused our money. The Waterfront Trust refused our money. They, in turn, turned to our general manager and asked him to do exactly what we were wanted and were willing to pay for. That, that person didn't want to do it because obviously it was just too much money. So they didn't take, so that my understanding is they didn't vote on the, the proposal. They didn't get back to us on the, the, the remedies. What they did in turn was they canceled everything. So here's where we're, where, we're, where we're at, okay? So like I said, we delayed the payment because we, did, we were upset because they weren't paying realty tax. And guess what, Rick? Guess what? They didn't pay the realty taxes for three years. Between May, uh, between June 15th and the time that they served us with the doors to default, guess what the Waterfront Trust did, right? They paid the realty taxes in full. Really? Yeah. Guess what? It's a miracle, eh? <laughs> so it's a miracle. Where do we go from here? Well, here's... Uh, thank you very much. My understanding we got, is... We got about two minutes. My understanding is that the proposal that this third party is still available. So I'm calling on the city fathers. I'm calling on the mayor. I'm ta- calling on this council members. I'm calling on anybody and everybody who cares. If you care about Sarcoa, and if you care about, uh, a lo- and you don't want a long procrastinate, uh, like you don't want a long lawsuit because it's going to cost the city of Hamilton the hundreds of thousands of dollars unnecessarily, take this deal, bring us back in. We don't want to take our, our quick, quick men out. The Waterfront Trust is guaranteed I believe rent for the next six months. The proposal is still alive. They refuse to answer. So here's what they did. They closed us down. They closed us down. Now they want all of this uncertainty as opposed to money and and some some time to straighten out our differences once and for all. Do you have a deadline for the city to to adopt this deal or or I Uh, guess legal action is on the way? Tom Jackson knows what's going on. The third party negotiator knows what's going on. Board members know of the Waterfront Trust going on. Everybody knows what's going on. Somebody please pick up the phone, get together, City of Hamilton, Mayor, anybody, get together and get us back in because we're not going away. We'll trot down to the City of Toronto, hire the most expensive lawyers that Mm -hmm. they are. I I will not stop until I get a verdict and we get some closure in this. So... How about this question? How long, we got about a minute here, how long are you willing to wait before you hear from the city to say, yeah, we want you back well, in or not? Here's the deal. Uh, the sooner the better, because obviously these people, I spoke to the fellow from uh, my, our general manager, Mike Atari from Jim, and he said that he believes that some of them are salvageable. But here's the problem, Rick. If, if we go back for relief of forfeiture, and now we have to pay all these costs, and we're not certain if the, the, the people are going to come back, it's impossible for us it's fruitile for us mm-hmm. but it, <clears throat> if they accept this this proposal <clears throat> it gives us rent assurance <clears throat> for six months if not longer and don't forget the big big picture here prominent investor willing to spend millions of dollars millions of dollars at the waterfront so take off your legal hats 
guys, take off your legal hats, put on your civic hats. What is right for the city of Hampton? Do the right thing. Why are we being crucified for sticking out our necks, investing in this city, and now being treated like traitors and the scum of the earth? I will not stand for it. And if anybody out there thinks that's fair, good for you, because it's not. All right, we're going to end on that note. Sam, thanks for uh, coming in. Impassioned speech. Uh, Good luck with the fight. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. How soon is too soon? When your spouse dies, how long should you wait until you remarry? The issue has sparked heated debate in the case of uh, comedian Patton Oswalt, who plans to remarry 15 months after the death of his wife. Uh, his announcement has been met with uh, a flurry of condemnation on uh, on social media. Uh, his wife, Michelle McNamara, died uh, in April of 2016 due to a combination of uh, prescription medication and an undiagnosed heart condition. Now, the 48-year-old Oswalds became an online target after his fiance Meredith Salinger, uh, announced their engagement on Twitter last week. But many are asking, how could he move on to a new romantic partnership so quickly? So how soon is too soon. Here to talk about it is Jock McLaughlin, volunteer with the Partner Spousal Loss Program, Bereavement Families of Ontario. Jock, good morning. Thanks for joining the show. Uh, Good morning, Rick. Uh, Thanks to be on the show with you. So how soon is too soon? Uh, Well, in in your intro, you, you mentioned moving on, and you don't. I don't feel move on. You really, uh, I have a personal experience. I lost my wife uh, seven years ago. And um, I, within a year, I was involved with someone else, Heather. And um, we, we struck up a relationship that's been ongoing since then. But it's, you, you move with. You, you, it, it's, not a, it's not a situation where you... you um, uh, stop with what you were feeling in the past, but one where you you carry it with you, you treasure it, you honor it, and you and you live life uh, when the opportunity arrives. This is a this is a to me it's it's uh, it's a it's a huge feeling to uh, go through uh, a huge uh, ish, a, a huge uh, grieving process that you go through, and um, but you you. If you're ready to love again, then so be it, as I said in the article. So really there isn't, uh, and um, obviously there shouldn't be, you know, a set number or a set time limit for people to say, okay, now I'm now I'm ready to move on to the next phase of my life. Obviously, everyone's different. Everyone's, it's a very unique, very unique situation to grieve. Everyone handles it very differently. Um, the actual death and the circumstance of the death is one thing. Um, losing your spouse and um, uh, moving to to be open to a new relationship is a very unique timing experience uh, that some people have. Some people don't. My mother is an example of someone who lost her husband when she was in her mid-50s, and she never remarried. She never uh, had another significant relationship. And so she chose chose to... Uh, continue to honor the relationship she had and the love she had for my father. I, on the other hand, felt differently. I felt that companionship and my love could be extended to someone else, and I'm so happy that that has occurred. 
Is there a moment in time, and, and obviously you can speak, uh, you know, from from personal experience. But is there a moment in time where you you find yourself asking yourself that, you know, should I be allowed to do this? Allowed. Um, maybe that's not the right word. The, the, the judgment. The, the question is judgment, and 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 it's a it's a very um, a very contentious thought to have a notion that someone should judge another and the timing and when when is a when is when is an appropriate time to um, feel as though your grieving of your loss is is complete and you can go on to another relationship or move on and it's and it's there is no complete aspect to grieving grieving stays with you you i still grieve for the loss of my wife i I have children, and we we go out together and do things. And I, I uh, through their um, their growing up and maturing, I have uh, this real feeling that my my wife is so proud of them and so involved with them. And I have huge a huge uh, grieving that takes place during these moments of uh, of. Uh, of, of uh, uh, intensity with my kids, and um, that that means that the, the grief that you care for and the, and the life you had and the relationship you had carries through, even though that person no longer is with you. Well, it sounds like you're in a great place, Jock, and that's you know nice to hear. Obviously, and and you know I'm sure we have listeners who are listening to this segment saying you know I'm in this position right now, and maybe some of them are kind of feeling guilty about moving on to another relationship. D- does that exist? Yes, absolutely. They they feel as though it's uh, they feel as though they're dishonoring or they're or they're uh, possibly um, not uh, or feeling guilty, as you say, for for um, for feeling as though they could possibly extend their cherished love for their past relationship to another one, and and they feel uh, torn. They feel conflicted. Um, and that's that's there. That's present, um, and it and it is a feeling that you have. But I would say, in my case, it dissipated. It 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 was a feeling that was there, but uh, that that this is one major life you're leading, and you and if you have the ability to to uh, uh, honor and ch- and treasure the the life you had with the with your past spouse, with the chance to love again. This is huge, and 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 it and we have a, uh, as a human being, we have a huge capacity to love another and to love. So it is it is a, uh, it, for a period of time. It is it is a something to um, process and have a perspective about the previous and overcoming a guilt or having having a sense of um, a sense of. Uh, uh, not being able to move on to one where you can. Jock McLaughlin is our guest. He's a, a volunteer with the Partner Spousal Loss Program, uh, Bereavement Families of Ontario here on the Bill Kelly Show on AM 900 CHML. Rick filling in for Bill this week, and we're talking about the story of comedian Patton Oswalt, just one of many examples whose uh, spouse died uh, in April of 2016. Fifteen months later, he has decided to uh, marry another woman. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of emotions here, grief and mourning and guilt and anger. You could probably throw in a multitude of others. 
what are some of the more difficult emotions that that you had to deal with through that process? The the biggest thing was the biggest challenge in in, in I felt was that um, uh, was that this person, this incredible person that I've been married to for twenty five years, Lynn, has left and is not with me, and now I have to carry on a life or or carry on all of my future without her and I'm on my own being on your own making all of the decisions whether it's with children coming to you for advice or for uh, thoughts about their future or challenges uh, this this aspect of being on my own and having to uh, face the world without her uh, was perhaps the greatest challenge for me this this aspect of separation uh, physical uh, separation and and um, the uh, the ability to have a conversation and converse and 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 share uh, share the response of love from her to back and forth and me to her um, these are these are some of the most to me they were the most challenging things to overcome and and again when we use, even I am using the word overcome, we don't overcome, we live with it. And, and if you don't mind me asking, how long were you married for? Uh, 25 years. That's a substantial amount of time, especially, you know, making, as you said, making those decisions together, planning for the future together, and all of a sudden, uh, you're there yourself thinking, okay, what do I do now? Absolutely. I mean, I I remember getting the kids off to high school getting them out of the house getting them on their on the buses and off they went and I returned back home uh, went up to my bedroom and, and got in the fetal position and cried my eyes out because I didn't have her with me I no longer had her to help to help uh, with the world and to share the share the whole process um, being on my own was was a huge difference, and and uh, there you go. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I appreciate your honesty and, and and your openness here. This can't be uh, you know easy to talk about. But in, in your uh, experience with bereavement families of Ontario, what are some of the questions you get from people who are who are seeking advice? You know, it's a good question. I, I, I facilitate for BFO Toronto. Uh, I'm a board member, and, and it's an incredible place uh, that provides peer-based support for those who are grieving the loss of, of a loved one. And they get a perspective about things and their cycle and where grief is in their world and how they can um, cope and understand what they're going through. And the questions that we get are ones about it's really about a wonder. It's a wonder when when can I when can I start to feel free to be happy again? Um, there's this huge emotional roller coaster that you're on during grief. You go through periods of of sadness, severe sadness and despair. Some would even call it depression. And then you have other swings where you go up into bliss and happiness. And these and this. This back and forth uh, goes goes in in this emotional uh, challenge that you have to sort of feel as though you can possibly balance them a bit better or be a little bit more calm in your emotions. But it's it's severe and it's significant. And people 
people's questions are around when when can I expect to start feeling quote unquote normal again? When can I feel as though I have uh, the ability to um, go out, walk down the street, and be comfortable in in the environment I am I am I am now in? Um, it's it's really about timing and about understanding having having myself there as a facilitator who's seven years since uh my loss and having people that are there who may have had a loss within the last year or the last months or even the last weeks who turn up and they're there to the courage it takes to be there is incredible but to help them uh, get a grip on on what it is and, and what they're going through and just being able to share their feelings with other people who are like-minded is enormous. I think as a whole, uh, I'm of the belief that women are a little more stable um, uh, emotionally in terms of, you know, um, uh, corralling their emotions, uh, perhaps, and directing them in a, in a positive light. I'm not saying men aren't, aren't good at doing that, but, you know, as a whole. Do you find that women... Uh, compared to men, uh, wait a little bit longer to to uh, go back into relationships, or is it really, you know, a, a wild card in terms of uh, how that person's made up? It it's it's a I would say it's a wild card. I I, I you know is one year uh, out uh, a suitable time to start another relationship? For some, it's suitable or or they're capable of it. Um, Others need further time to process and 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 uh, and understand their grief. It is a it is a very as we said it's a very unique unique experience for each person based on their backgrounds and based on how they how their past relationships were uh, if they were very good and and if you had a relationship with your previous spouse and the death was a was a was a time when your spouse. And you were able to converse about the upcoming, uh, upcoming uh, departure, call it or the death that's imminent, and that spouse tells you that you know you 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 feel comfortable to to have a life beyond me. Um, these are things that are very um, situational and um, and um, sometimes able to provide. Uh, someone else a chance to move move to a new relationship sooner than others. Certainly an interesting and uh, obviously quite emotional uh, story and, and situation. Uh, Jock, is there a website that people can turn to to get uh, help from from you guys? Absolutely. Uh, BFO Toronto um, is is our website, and uh, we we are just uh, in in uh, we are we are a complete volunteer based. Uh, organization, and we rely on peer-based uh, uh, people with experience to facilitate groups that get together, and we handle all sorts of different kinds of deaths, um, and uh, whether it's your spouse or your child or, or different, different categories of, of uh, uh, death, these are all things that we work with uh, people and groups on on a, on a weekly basis, and um, there's uh, great opportunities to, to be part of that. And our donors believe in, believe in the cause and believe in the medicinal purposes and, and opportunities that people 
arrive at by being part of our organization. Thanks for that. Jock, thanks for joining us and, and being so open and honest and offering some advice uh, to our, our listeners. Uh, uh, enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you, and have a wonderful time today. It's a beautiful day out there. Enjoy it. You got it. Jock McLaughlin, a volunteer with the Partner Spousal Loss Program, Bereaved Families of Ontario. If you want more information, bfotoronto.ca is the website. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.